Our scripture today is found in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses 1 through 8. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, David is hiding on the hill of Hakilah, opposite Jeshimon. So Saul, accompanied by 3,000 of the fit young men of Israel, went immediately to the wilderness of Ziph to search for David there. Saul camped beside the road at the hill of Hakilah, opposite Jeshimon. David was living in the wilderness and discovered Saul had come there after him. So David sent out spies and knew for certain that Saul had come. Immediately, David went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw the place where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of his army, were laying down. Saul was lying inside the inner circle of the camp, with the troops camped around him. Then David asked Ahimelech, the Hethite, and Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruiah, who will go with me into the camp of Saul? I'll go with you, answered Abishai. And that night, David and Abishai came to the troops, and Saul was lying there asleep in the inner circle of the camp, with his spear stuck to the ground by his head. Abner and the troops were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy to you. Let me thrust the spear into him, the spear through him into the ground just once. I won't have to strike him twice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. That someday, very soon, my wife and I be starting a new expression of God's gospel, a new church somewhere in the the city of Seattle or the surrounding area, and it's such an honor to get to be here with you guys today. Uh, Today, we're we're in uh, continuing our sermon series, When Mess Meets Mercy, the Gospel of 1 Samuel. Uh, and today we get to see a, a really interesting um, view of David. And this is what's really interesting about this story in chapter 26 is that uh, it kind of mirrors almost identically to chapter 24. This is the second time that we see David sparing Saul's life. We get to see something really cool about David here. We get to understand something about David's imagination through this story. And so as we walk through this passage together, I want you guys to be thinking about that. What does your imagination look like? What is capturing your imagination on a daily basis? And how does that really interplay with how you live your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word today. Lord, we don't take it lightly that we get to come together and open your word and have you speak directly to us. God, I pray that today you would capture our imaginations. God, I pray today that we would live by faith. Today, we would choose that you are good and that you go before us that you would never leave us, you would never forsake us. But God, that we would stand and be courageous because our faith is planted on a rock that will not be shaken. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. So this story, and, and I, I love where we stopped. We stopped in, in verse 8 where we have this guy, Abishai, and him and David have snuck into the camp of Saul, right? So there's 3,000 men camped in concentric circles, and in the middle of that circle is Saul. And Saul is probably surrounded by Abner and some of his most elite guards. So like these guys are commandos, right? These are the dudes that know what to do. And here come David and Abishai, two guys versus 3,001, because we have uh, 3,000 plus Saul, right? 3,001 guys. So we're, they're crawling into the middle of the camp. And in the middle of the camp, they have a conversation with each other, Right? So what we see, we see they're talking. Now, I don't, I'm assuming it's nighttime because, it, you know, they're sleeping. Um, and so they're not signing to each other. Um, but, and even a whisper, if you think about it, they're in the wilderness, right? This is what the, the, the scripture tells us, that they're in the wilderness. So it is dead quiet. But these two dudes, in the middle of 3,000 guys, have a conversation. And the conversation goes like this. Abishai says, David. Let me take that spear. I'm going to shove it into him. I don't need twice. I only need once. I got this. I know how to do this. Done. It's really interesting because this is the same spear that Saul has used to try to kill David three times. This is a spear that has been thrown at David and caused him to run away. This is the spear that has been thrown at Jonathan, David's friend, Saul's son. This is a spear that has continuously been an example of tyranny and oppression to David. And David's lieutenant, Abishai, says, let me just shove it through him when we'll get out of here. Everything will be done. All of this will be over. Sounds like a really good idea to me. Like if, I, if I'm thinking, I've been running for my life for a little while. I've been living in a cave. I've been eating off the land. We saw last week, you know, that David almost and his men almost starved to death because Nabal wouldn't give him food. Like, right, this is, this is the solution, dude. You have crawled into camp. Get rid of this guy. But David does something different. Now, I stopped at verse 8 because I wanted us to have that tension. Like, ooh, what's going to happen, right? Is this, is this the end? For those of us that know the story, we know that this isn't the end. But I wanted us to, to have our imagination start to kind of go. What could happen in this moment? You guys ever have that what if moment? Ever have that moment where you're like, well, man, what if I just would have made this choice? Have you ever like been walking to work or walking to the store and it starts raining and you're like, man, what if I would have just brought an umbrella? Because you had faith there was not going to be rain between now and when you got to the store. Happens to me. Right, what, those what if moments. And it feels like this could be a what if moment that David is going to look back and be like, what if I would have just done it? What if I would have just done it last time? But see, David has something that we all have in, in various amounts, but it's this thing called faith. You see, a few years in the past, David had been anointed. He had been chosen by God to be the next king of Israel. And he knew that that was going to happen. He had faith that God would fulfill his promise. And so even though it feels like Literally, and the words that Abishai says is, God has delivered us all into our hands. 
But David responds this way in verse 9. He says, but David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. For who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be innocent? And David added, as the Lord lives, the Lord will certainly strike him down. Either this day, or sorry, either, either his day will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. However, because of the Lord, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Instead, take the spear and the water jug by his head and let's go. So at least David disarms Saul, okay? Let, let's give him that. Like at least he's like, eh, grab the spear, just in case, you know? Uh, and, and David is sitting there in the middle of 3,000 men, tired and weary after being hunted over and over and over again. And he finds the faith to believe. He finds the faith to believe that God will fulfill his promises. You see, faith captures our imagination. You see, we as, as a society think that imagination is something for dreamers and children, right? Like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, you want to be an astronaut? That's great. What are you going to go to college for, right? We, we, we start to, to kind of become adults and we're like, well, yeah, it'd be really nice if you could be, you know, X, Y, or Z. It'd be really nice if you could have that house. It'd be really nice if you could go on the mission field. It'd be really nice if you could plant a church. But really, what are you going to do? I had this conversation with my father-in-law. Um, I was telling him that I'm going to move his daughter away from him 3,000 miles up to Seattle. And he said, you know, what are you doing? I was like, I don't really know. How are you going to get paid? Not really sure. Do you, like, have a building? Nah. Do you have people? No. But, but you're going to take my daughter, and you're going to go do this thing? Yes, sir. Like, I, I, just, I didn't know. I didn't, like, I didn't know what to say other than, like, I feel like this is what God wants from me. And so, yeah, it would have... You know, in, in, in my father-in-law's mind, it would have been way smarter for me to, like, get a job here and, you know, work a few years and get to know people and, you, you know, do all these things. But, like, that just wasn't what we felt like God was saying. I had, in that moment, to live by faith. And it's a continual faith moment because I moved in the middle of a pandemic. And then I moved in and, and a pandemic that has continued to, to stretch on and on and and this is not the ideal time. I didn't know if you guys know this, but if you want to start something new, this ain't the time to do it. Just pause and wait. Uh, this is what we're doing. In the middle of being tired and weary, I still have to stand on faith like David because I have this imagination. I have this view that God can do exceedingly greater than I can think or imagine. And I think faith requires a little bit of imagination because we, our brain says, I have to see cold, hard fact, right? Our brain says, I must know the path forward. I have to know the means by which this goal will be accomplished. But imagination expands that, expands it almost as big as God. Not quite, but almost. Imagination actually leads us to the glory and majesty of a God that is so far beyond our comprehension. 
Our human minds cannot contemplate, cold hard facts cannot contemplate what God can do and how capable he truly is of fulfilling his will and his promises. So imagination has to help us out. We need an imaginative faith. We need a faith that says, I don't know how, but I'm going to. A faith that says, I don't know how we will afford to do this, but I'm going to take that pay cut so that I can take care of my kids. We need that faith to say, I don't know how God is going to do this, but I'm going to go and serve on a mission field or with a church planter somewhere. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know what your imagination, what God is working in you, what tension is in your life. But I know that to to fulfill the things that God has for each and every one of us, it's going to take some imagination. Because see, this Bible right here contains 66 books and thousands upon thousands of stories of people who did not live ordinary lives. They lived lives that required faith and imaginative faith. David is here, imagining that God will fulfill his promise. Imagining that there will be a day that God will take care of Saul and that Saul's wickedness will come to an end and he will be king. But he literally has the tools of his own salvation at his hands. But faith is his choice. And that's, that's an incredible choice. I don't know. I don't think I could do that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in the middle of that camp. And I'm like, no, you know what? Let's stick them and let's go. I, I mean, that's, that's what I'm thinking. I don't know. But David is this great example of what it looks like to let faith capture our imagination. He understands something that's really important. He understands that obedience will eventually lead us to God's ways. Because we don't have to know how God's going to do something, we just need to know that he will, right? Faith is knowing that God will, not knowing how how God will. And so David gets that, and David understands that it's, that what, what gets him from point A to point God is faith and trusting and obeying. And he has felt that God is saying, It is not your job to take care of Saul. It is mine. And so he does it. He does it, and it seems so foolish. What's great about God is that he doesn't leave us alone to make these decisions. right? He's not just like, here's what you need to do. Figure it out. I'll see you at the end. Not the God we serve. We serve a God who is so transcendent that he, his very breath created galaxies, but a God who is also so eminent that he cares about our daily lives. How incredible is that? That there is a, a God that is overseeing the spinning of the earth, and he is overseeing you day by day, and he cares intimately. And so as we move through the story, we see that God will confirm David, and will encourage this faith. In verse 12, it says this. So David took the spear and the water jug by Saul's head, and they went their way. No one saw them, no one knew, and no one woke up. They all remained asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had come over them. So David puts his faith 
that he will be king one day. So he walks literally into the middle of his enemies. David would write a a psalm, a song that that says that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And I don't know that he was necessarily referring specifically to this moment, but it seems like he could have maybe been thinking a little bit about this moment. He's there, literally in the middle of his enemies. And David knows what God's asked of him because his faith receives encouragement. Because God had gone before him and had made everyone sleep. The Bible doesn't say that, you know, the guys got a little, had a little too much wine and so they were, you know, asleep that way. Or it didn't say they were really tired from hunting David and so that's why they were in deep sleep. It says that the Lord had come and caused them all to be in a deep sleep. And so that's why David and Abishai can walk into the middle of his camp have a conversation, and then steal stuff and walk out. It's not just luck. It's God. It's not just good fortune. It's not just sneakiness. It's not just, you know, they learned to to walk heel to toes so they could be really silent. No, it's God. And David knows this because it's impossible but for God. I think what I really want to to capture from this moment, though, is that David put himself in a position where it could only be God. Right? There's no way that David can, like, go back to his buddies and be like, bro, I got in there, I stole, I walked out. It was totally me. There's no way. There's no way. David could have run. David could have avoided. David could have done so many things. But he doesn't. He puts himself in a position where only God could save him. But how often are we doing that in our lives? Now, I'm not talking about being reckless. I'm not talking about just going and doing crazy things. But what I am saying is, are we living by faith in a way that we are putting ourselves where only God can sustain us? Where we can look back and know, God, it is only you who could take care of me. When I look back and I know, I know only you, Lord, were the one who was able to get me through. So often, we find ourselves playing it safe because it's easier. Life is, all, life is hard enough. We can all say that, right? But when we put ourselves in a position where we're fully dependent on God to do everything to save us, to sustain us, we allow God to be as majestic and big and strong as he is. When we play it safe, and I, and I guess I don't know what play it safe looks like for you. I'm not in your life. I'm not living your life. For me, it was staying in Houston. I had a nice life there. My wife had a job she loved. We had a church that we adored. And eventually, you know what? It brought hundreds of people with us from our church and could have had, you know, could have seen God do some cool things there. But it wouldn't have taken a lot of faith because it was, it was easy for us. It's what we knew. So people ask me a lot of times, so why did you come up here to plant a church? And, and it's, it's pretty simple because 
God asked me to. I didn't come to Seattle because I have the solutions to how to plant a church. I didn't come to Seattle because I know what's going on here. I came here because God asked me to. And because it literally has put me in a position where I can't eat without him sustaining me. My wife and I cannot afford uh, to live without God. We're in a place that's really exciting, but really scary. We're in a place where we will look back in a couple years and know we're probably still going to be in that place, but we'll be able to look back even more and say, Lord, it was you. Nothing we, nothing we could have done would have got us through but you. It's been a really hard year. It's been a hard year for all of us. But man, we moved here and we got to meet like six people in the first six months that we were here. We were alone in our apartment away from our families. My wife couldn't find a job because nobody was hiring. She's a teacher. They definitely weren't hiring teachers. We had a place to live that was graciously provided for us at an affordable rate. That was about it. And we had our church family. At that point, it was mainly just the staff because we weren't really meeting together for the first couple of months. And then we were meeting in a restricted capacity. And, and man, we, we have been through so much this year. We lost a car. My car got totaled uh, on an accident on I-5 just a couple months ago. And we, we had a miscarriage earlier this year. And man, when we look back on this year, the only thing I can say is, God, you did it. He has encouraged our faith over and over and over again by showing us, by getting us, uh, there, a guy named Paul who was an early church father, he put it this way, that he said that, that God gives us just enough faith to, or just enough strength to get through the day. And it's felt like that day after day after day after day. That we're living just enough to get through. And I assume David is in the same boat. David is sitting here and, and at the end of every day, and we know this is true because we have his songs that he wrote and songs that he wrote during this time. He kept saying, Lord, save me. I'm, you know, he talks about being weary. He begs the Lord to take away his oppressors. He begs God to come and intervene. So David is tired and weary. And as I was studying for this sermon I came across this quote, and I thought it was really, really good. The, the, the guy's name is Dale Ralph Davis that wrote it. And I used his thoughts to, to really help shape my talk today. And, it, and it, he says this, Yahweh, God, tends to be that kind of God, one who reaches out to his tired and weary servants, and in the midst of their discouragement, grants them some plain token, some small evidence that he has not forgotten his word and his promises to them. As when we live by faith, we will constantly have small reminders of God's faithfulness. Sometimes we have to really search for them. Sometimes they're incredibly apparent, but they're there because God rewards faith. It's incredible. It's incredible what God does when we step out. 
It's incredible the, the gaps that God can fill. It's incredible the amount of things that he will do to see his children and his promises fulfilled. It's incredible. But we have got to put ourselves in a position living by faith, letting our faith and our imagination be captured so that we can find that encouragement. So David does something really interesting next. So he's stolen the spear, stolen the water jug, and then David's not a stupid guy, so he runs away. So he runs away and he puts a big gulch in between where Saul is camped and where he is, and he stands on a high mountain. So he's like, I'm going to stand way back. Nobody can get to me. And then he calls out. And he, call, and he wakes the whole camp up. And he calls out to a guy named Abner, who's the, uh, the head of Saul's army. And he basically makes fun of him. And, and he actually goes even further and says, hey, you guys were supposed to protect your king. You didn't. I was just there. I got the spear to prove it. You guys should all be put to death. And to be fair, they all should have been, right? That was their job was to protect the king, and they didn't do it. And so David is kind of taunting Abner here. And then Saul wakes up, and Saul knows. This is the second time that Saul's life has been in David's hands. And it's really interesting because up until this point, when, uh, since Saul has been angry with David, Saul has always called David the son of Jesse. He refuses to call him David. He calls him the son of Jesse as a disparaging remark. Well, in chapter 24, and then here again in chapter 26, he changes what he calls him. He says, oh, my son, my son, David, is that you? Saul, all of a sudden when, it, when you know, the tables are turned, is like, oh, yeah, you're my son. To be fair, he is David's father-in-law. David has married Saul's daughter. And so Saul, in this moment, finds a little bit of, let's call it humility, given the benefit of the doubt. But he calls out to David and he says, hey, how you doing? I won't ever do anything bad to you again. Don't worry. Come to me. Now, we don't really know if Saul was being honest here. If Saul's track record is anything, we probably can assume that he was not being honest, but... We don't know what Saul was saying, but Saul has basically come to a point where he has truly realized, I've messed up, God has gone from me, and God's spirit is with David. And David responds really well. David is, is still in this mourning kind of period, but in verse 18, Sorry, in verse 17, Saul, it says, Saul recognized David's voice and asked, Is that your voice, my son, David? It is my voice, my lord and king, David said. Then he continued, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? What crime have I committed? Now, may my lord, the king, please hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. But if it is people... May they be cursed in the presence of the Lord. For today they have banished me from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go and worship other gods. So don't let my blood fall to the ground far from the Lord's presence. 
The king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, like one who pursues a partridge in the mountains. So that's a lot of words. Essentially what David is saying, David realizes that he has uh, been cast out of the, the communion with Israel. David loves the Lord, and worshiping the Lord is one of David's favorite things. And he knows that he's at a point now where he's about to have to leave what he calls the Lord's inheritance, or uh, uh, yeah, the Lord's inheritance, which is the land of Israel. He's about to have to leave. There's nowhere for him to go anymore. And even though God's presence is truly eminent, it is everywhere. The way that, that God was kind of manifesting himself in this time is at the Ark of the Covenant. And so that's where the true presence of God was. And, that's where, and the Ark of the Covenant was this big box that contained a lot of, you know, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the rod of Aaron, some, some really cool things. But it's where the, the glory of God dwelt. And it was in the middle of their tabernacle where they met for worship. And so David's biggest cry here is that, hey, you have forced me to go away and I can't go to church. Is basically what David's saying. I cannot worship in community with other people. It's one of David's biggest grievances. Saul is trying to kill him. And David is so upset that he has been forced away from the presence of the Lord. That he cannot come together like we are today. How incredible is David's faith? That that's the thing he is worried about. He's not worried that he's away from his wife. He's not worried that he's away from the comforts. He's not worried that he's being hunted. Truly, his biggest worry is that you have cast me out of the Lord's inheritance and have told me to go worship other gods because I cannot worship God outside of the tabernacle. Again, it's a a little narrow view. We don't understand this because now we have the Holy Spirit with us and in each and every one of us. There was something special about going to the place of worship in the Old Testament where God's glory was in one place. This is what David, this faith is so, so deeply seated in him. that That is his biggest concern. How incredible is that? That's what faith drives David to. To put himself in a position that only God can save him. And now his lament is, why have you driven me from the presence of the Lord? David sums everything up here at the very end. See, because faith not only captures our imagination, and not only does it receive encouragement from the Lord himself, but faith also prevails, it continues in our testimony. When we talk about the great things that God has done, faith grows, not just in us, but in others. It's why we love to hear and read stories of men and women overseas, of missionaries who have gone before us, of of Christians who are being persecuted today. We love to hear their stories of faith because it gives us this understanding that faith is sufficient, that God is sufficient. Faith prevails through our testimony. And this is what David says in verse 22. David answered, Here's the king's spear. Have one of the young men come over and get it. The Lord will repay every man for his righteousness and his loyalty. I wasn't willing to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, even though the Lord handed me you over to me. 
Just as I consider your life valuable today, so may the Lord consider my life valuable and rescue me from all of my trouble. Saul said to him, you are blessed, my son David. You will certainly do great things and you will always also prevail. Then David went his way and Saul returned home. So David stands on God's promise. David says, I could have done, I could have taken things into my own hands, but I know that things are actually in God's hands. He puts all of his eggs in faith's basket. And he says, may God repay my righteousness. May God sustain me. May God keep me. And his testimony, his faith, then shows Saul what Saul has always known, deep down. But he knows that David will prevail. He knows that God is taking care of David. And, and with Saul saying this, I'm assuming now all 3,000 of those men surrounding Saul also know. They see David's faith. They see the encouragement that God gave in that faith. And they see this testimony confirming that faith has led David to prevail. David will one day become king. Saul knows his end is coming. So David goes away and Saul goes home and they never meet again. This is the last time that Saul and David meet each other. Saul is going to pass away in a couple chapters and David will then take the kingship. But David has done something that is incredible. David lives by faith and he's taken the future and he's brought it into the present. The future that he will be king, that Saul's wickedness will be repaid, that his faithfulness will be repaid, David's faithfulness will be repaid. He's taken that future and he's applied it to the present. He said, I will live now in the knowledge that the end is coming. I will act according to, to now how I know I would like to be treated in the future. I am going to be, I'm going to treat this king like I want to be treated when I am king. I am going to act as if God's promises are true. He has brought the future into the present. What so often happens for us, me included, is that we do the opposite. We bring our present circumstance into the future. We say that what is going on now will always be. I feel alone and isolated and scared now, and that's how it's always going to be. I'm in, I am tired and I am weary. That's how I will always be. And we live in light of the present, and we take our present and impose it onto our future. That's not faith. That's doubt. Faith brings the future into the present. Doubt brings the present into the future. And if we could live with the future in mind, and the future, if we, if we remember, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, the story of Jesus, the future is that Jesus is coming again. The future is that Jesus has won. The future is that Jesus is establishing his kingdom here on earth. We prayed it today that, that it would be like heaven on earth. 
that things would be different than they are now. If we live and act according to that truth, we live by faith and the whole world changes. Everything in us, around us, and through us changes because we are living with a future mindset. Understanding that I am going to act like God is here and his kingdom is reigning. Because see, Jesus, when Jesus came, he came to establish the kingdom of heaven. This is not just a thing that will happen when he returns. It's a thing that happened already. 2,000 years ago, God came and put on skin and in the man of Jesus, established his kingdom here on earth. Jesus lived with the future in mind. He took his present and he lived with a future mindset, knowing he would go to the Father, knowing that he would return to us. And, and it's incredible. There's a story of Jesus, and we find in his biography by a guy named Luke. And this story is so incredible because it shows what it looks like to live by faith through the eyes of a woman who is frail and hurting and afraid. This woman had been bleeding for 10 years, and she had spent all of her money trying to heal herself. She lived in a present that was just full of worry. She was tired. She was hurting. But she heard about a man named Jesus. She heard about someone who could change her life with just a touch. She heard about someone who was living and establishing a kingdom that no one had seen before. And so even though she was supposed to stay outside of the town, if you're familiar at all with Jewish law, you know that if a woman is bleeding, she is unclean. That means that this woman hasn't been able to worship the, the, the father at the tabernacle for 12 years. She hasn't been allowed in community with people for 12 years. She has spent every dime that she has over the last 12 years to try to make this present better. But then Jesus. And so Jesus is walking, and the, the, the way that Luke describes it is that the crowd was so vast, it was literally crushing him. So I imagine that Jesus is in the center here and his disciples are kind of making like a, a perimeter, trying to keep people away from him because everyone knows that this Jesus guy is different. There's something about him, the way he lives, the way he speaks, the, the, the way that he goes about loving people, it's different. It's not like anything we've ever seen. There's a kingdom that he is building, that he is talking about, that is something that we haven't understood. And so they're trying to get to Jesus. And here's this woman. Weak, alienated, would probably be chastised and, 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 and maybe punished for even being in this crowd because of her uncleanliness. But she says, I know that if I can just get to Jesus, I know that if I can just touch him, it would change my life. And so she fights. She fights her way through the crowd. And yes, I'm, I'm putting a little bit more into the narrative than we get, but this is my imagination. This is me imagining the scenario, a crowd of people crushing in on Jesus and this one woman who just knows if I can just get there, my life would be different. 
And she fights and she fights and she fights. And she reaches out. And she reaches and touches a, a small tassel on Jesus' robe. Now these tassels, what, what, what you may have read and what you probably learned was, was you know, touch the hem of his garment. That's what we, you know, those that have been raised in the church. But, but a better translation is truly the tassel. So these tassels are on uh, the corners of robes of, of, Jew, of the Jewish uh, people. And they're, they're made specifically to remind them of the covenant that God made with them. The covenant through the law, through the Torah. They wear these tassels on their robes so they can continuously remember God's promise. And so here's this woman. She says, if I can just get to Jesus, if I can just grab onto the tassel, so she's got to be low, right? Because that's where, where it is. She's low, and she's probably on her knees, crawling and crawling and crawling. And she reaches out, and she grasps hold of the reminder of the promise of God, and she is healed instantly. And Jesus knows. Thousands of people are touching him and crushing him, but one woman with faith touches him, and he goes, I, hey, stop. I felt power come out of me. And he says, who touched me? And he looks around, and his disciples are like, bro, everybody touched you. I touched you. I don't know. But he said, no, I know that somebody touched me. And so this woman, who should not be there, this woman who is chastised or has been ostracized from community. She steps forth. She, in chapter 8 of Luke, she says this. When the woman, this is verse 47, when the woman saw that she was discovered, she came trembling and fell down before him. In the presence of all the people, she declared the reason she had touched him and how she was instantly healed. This is her testimony, and this is what God says. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How incredible is it? To imagine this woman, all her eggs in faith basket. Everything she has, everything she is, is put into this basket. If I can just touch Jesus, if I can just experience this man who has changed things forever, if I can just get there, I know my life would be different. And it happens. And she tells the world. And Jesus responds to his daughter, your faith has saved you. Friends, our faith has saved us. Our faith in Jesus has saved us. It's incredible. By God's grace, each and every one of us, hopefully in this room, have put our faith in Jesus. And it has saved us. So how does that affect our present? How does faith impact everyday decisions? How do we put ourselves into places where we can say it was only God? God is the only answer. It was only God saved me. Because that woman knew she could not save herself. She knew that no one else could save her. It was only Jesus. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, 
if you don't know what it looks like to be saved, if you have not felt the Holy Spirit saying to you, daughter, son, your faith has saved you, I would love to talk to you about it. I would love to introduce you to this Jesus. If you're watching online, I would love for you to get in contact with one of us, staff at hallowschurch.org. Somebody will reach out to you. I promise we want you to know that saving faith. We want you to know the grace of one who is as transcendent as anything we can imagine, but who has, is as eminent as you and me. And living by faith takes our present and says, I'm going to live with the future in mind. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for faith. I thank you. I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for faith that changes things, that creates a present that is future-minded. Lord, I pray that I would not bring my present into the future. I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us would be challenged to live by faith and that it would affect every single thing that we do. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for granting us the faith to trust that you are who you say you are. In Jesus' name, amen.